And I came into work that day and I just had, there was no, I couldn't get my email because it was just streams and streams of really harsh hate mail. Actually, you know, I I loved it. I I can't tell it. It ended up in court for a while. (laughs) I'll tell you. There's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Well, this week's guest doesn't agree. Every crisis is unique. As a crisis manager, he's helped some of the world's biggest brands stay off the front page. Crisis can move really quickly. Your goal has to be to try and set the agenda. Andrew discusses the role of culture in preventing a crisis from happening within an organisation. I think culture is ultimately the only real defence against poor ethical behaviour. Without the right culture, people find a way around it or they'll just ignore it. He also shares his thoughts on the PwC scandal. What they needed to do had to happen last year. They needed to take action far, far faster than they did. Keep listening if you've ever wondered how big businesses can get it so wrong when it comes to crisis management. Welcome to The Thought Follower. I'm Joe Mackay. I've always had a lot of questions about life, and this show is my quest to find some answers. Each week, I'll chat to a thought leader to hear what's going on in their space. Let's jump into the next episode. My guest on the show today is a strategy and media expert. He's a former journalist and today helps organizations solve communications challenges. Uh, He's an expert in working with and understanding, um, interpreting lawyers and specializing in crisis management as well. Andrew McKenzie, thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. How would you sum up what you do in one sentence? (laughs) One sentence is is the the classic challenge, isn't it? Um, I I work with business and legal leaders to, to solve communication challenges. They can be proactive, they can be reactive. Uh, the reactive are much more around issues and crisis. Proactive is around building reputation. Okay. I'm really interested in, in that reactive space because you are, yeah, you're reacting, you know, something, something may have gone wrong, something's happened. Has that job around crisis management, has that gotten easier or harder over time? Well, every crisis is unique. No two are alike. And there are principles and experience that you bring to crisis and advising clients on a crisis, it is constantly changing. And through my career, the difference between managing a crisis with traditional media, as you might have 20 years ago, to the huge impact of social media, chalk and cheese. Yeah. How do you handle that? You know, fake news, social media, people running their own narratives. What's the strategy? (laughs) I think it's a, it is often a judgment call as to how far ahead you try to get out ahead of the communication. So you've got a problem, crisis can move really quickly. Your whole goal has to be to try and set the agenda to tell a story that benefits your client. For example, a crisis that involves people being injured. That is a completely different matter to something that might involve corruption or involve a legal case or, or, or legal risk. You've got to make a judgment call about how far you get out in front of it. And definitely there are principles that are applied, but it, each, each one's unique. So you touched on there working in a way that benefits your client. You know, I read you, you'd posted about Deepwater Horizon and BP's response to that. Now that's had a massive impact on the environment and on people whose lives were lost and that kind of thing. So is that ever kind of a pinch point for you as an individual, as a person where something really bad has happened, but you're trying to maybe not use the word spin, but you're trying to, as you said, benefit your client out of that or get a result that works for them? Well, you, you play a dual role. You are an outsider. 
you're paid to be an outsider. And this is something I really work very hard with my students around. Um, you don't just have a responsibility to ensure and, and echo what your client or the organisation that you're within wants to hear. You have to give them the bad news mm. as well. You have to say to BP, this is a scenario where you've come out with actions. You've got to be transparent about what has happened. And often you'll get massive pushback on that. That particularly comes from the lawyers involved in an organisation. They will say that the legal risk is too high and you've got to be the one who said, well, reputation risk is really high as well. And we've got to take that into account in how we respond to this issue. Tell me about a time when you were really surprised at either the, the over-response or the under-response from the public. Has there ever been a moment where you thought this is going to be huge and, and kind of nothing came of it or, or the reverse? I think with years of experience, you get pretty good at judging when something's going to be picked up and big. The mm -hmm. only question you have is will stay below the radar. <laughs> a lot of the issues that I'm bought in with are around HR issues, for example, are really upset. You know, someone who has been treated poorly within an organisation and they're perhaps going to litigation or contemplating litigation. And is this going to get found out? What is our role and what is our position as a company? Sometimes those things do go under the radar. But I always advise companies to know exactly what they're going to say if this goes public. On the other end of the spectrum, many, many years ago, I was brought in by a global company which was taking an initiative. It was a proactive initiative coming from Singapore. They completely underestimated the Australian media market and how they would take a particular initiative. They were trying to be proactive around a long-term issue that they faced. But by being proactive, mm. they were going to create a furor beyond belief. And this was coming from Singapore, an environment where perhaps the media was less aggressive. And in that instance, mm. my advice was, let's just not do this program. And they were still insistent. And so I found a way to do what they suggested but in a way that would be completely under the radar, that it wouldn't actually come out and be seen because it, I knew that it was in their interests to do that. And no one thanked me for that in the end, but I know that I actually saved that client a hell of a lot of pain uh, and it would have been like front page pain. So you've been in this game for a long time. How have societies, you know, in the general population's expectations, you know, around transparency and corporate responsibility and things like that. How have, how have those things changed over time? So in some areas, I think there's far greater transparency and it's very positive. I mean, social media and the existence of cameras, for example, on phones mean that there's a lot of things that institutions don't get away with that they might have in the past. But at the same time, I think there are other areas where some large institutions are, are just not sharing in the way that perhaps they would have many years ago. I'm trying to think of an example of that. ESG, very, very positive environment, social and governance measurements. Now that's become something where I think there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on, particularly in institutions like banks. And so there's kind of a quasi transparency that's happening. And in the past, perhaps some of those environmental initiatives might have been more transparent than they are now. Ironically enough, we have all of this regulation around it, but it, it doesn't seem to be really providing more information. It's providing less. That's interesting. 
Hey, it's Joe here. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Every chat in season one of The Thought Follower is very different. I've talked to creatives, economists, elite athletes, CEOs, venture capitalists, and a bunch more along the way. You never quite know what you're going to get, so make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you don't miss an episode. Get back to the chat. Where do you see it moving in the future, this space of crisis management and, and how people respond in the court of public opinion? Firstly, social media will become an even bigger aspect, plays a really big agenda setting role. So in any crisis, mm. you really have to take into account traditional media because they're the ones who boost all of the tweets, negative and positive. And so traditional media will continue to be there, but it's shrinking more and more. And so it makes the job mm. of crisis management more and more complicated. And I think we're going to rely more on technology to help us track that as well, because sometimes don't even know that a crisis is going on in a certain part of social media without that form of tracking. Mm. I think it's going to get more complicated and the outcomes less clear. I think you only really know whether you've managed a crisis well. A classic mm. example of that is what we've seen with PricewaterhouseCoopers and its tax issue. Mm. They initiated, started managing that crisis back in not soon after 2016. And it might have looked for a long time like it was going along really well. We're keeping this below the radar. We're managing it well, primarily via legal means. You wouldn't say that now. What's been the takeaway from that? Like it's obviously not looking good at the moment, huge reputational damage. How do you see this washing up for PwC? It's hard to say that it's going to be anything but somewhat of a disaster. It's very easy in hindsight, and it's very easy from the outside to say this is what should have been done. Other examples of that is digital hacking. For example, the Optus hack that happened a little while ago, they faced a lot of criticism for not moving fast enough. So I think in the medium term, PwC, there's not a lot that they can do other than what they're continuing. What they needed to do had to happen last year. They needed to take action far, far faster than they did. The nature of partnerships makes it kind of difficult that they still haven't revealed the names of the people involved and that they still haven't said how they're really going to manage this going forward would suggest to me that we may well be looking at PwC breaking up in Australia over the next couple of years. I've spent some time in management consultancies and I don't know what the seniority of these different people could be, but that's one that, that really jumped out at me. If, if it's you know a manager, a, a senior manager somewhere who's, who's just a rank and file soldier doing their job, all of a sudden they're on the front page of the Herald. Like I personally thought yeah, some of that impact on those individuals could be really significant. What's your take on that? Like, do you, you kind of, you're saying there, that's that's what should have happened. Well, there's added complexity because everyone's lawyered up and it will be playing out for a very long time. While it's easy for me to sit here or anyone to sit here and say, this is what they should have done or shouldn't have done, all I can view is the outside. And if there was a way back in January for them to have not dilly-dallied about getting rid of the CEO or for him for resigning because he was always going to have that hit with him. I think there was a lot of wishful thinking that this will, no one will notice, didn't come to pass. If that had happened, perhaps they then wouldn't be in the case where they're needing to reveal 50, 60 people because the CEO has taken full responsibility quickly and initiated action. As it was, the action was initiated after the financial review had revealed the, the detail so they'd lost the agenda by then. Yeah. 
And so you wrote a piece on this and, and one thing that really jumped out at me within that was this link with the culture. Expression used was that the culture is like the water in the fish tank and it can be murky, but the fish swimming around inside don't necessarily know the difference. Tell me a bit about that. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. That goes back to the point we were talking about before about the outsider. As an outsider, you can see that water mm. and you can make a difference to it. But unless the business is prepared to bring in an outsider and actually listen to them, and really it's not one, it can be quite a few. I think culture is ultimately the only real defence against poor ethical behaviour. It's the one thing that can override everything else. You can have processes in place galore, you can have extreme governance, but without the right culture, people find a way around it or they'll just ignore it. Mm. So it looks like PwC had murky water. It looks like they had a culture mm. which allowed poor ethical decisions to be made and now they're paying a hell of a price for it. Yeah. Tell me, what does thought leadership mean to you? Bit of a change of topic. <laughs> thought leadership, it's a, it's a fascinating subject. Um, I first started coming across the concept of thought leadership over a decade ago and I started using the term at that point in various workshops and it was greeted with some scepticism. It was like, well, what does that really mean? And that sounds like a little bit of jargony <laughs> bullshit. And honestly, it can be, but mm, it's subsequently yeah. become very accepted. To me, it's the most important thing is putting that leadership element on it. It's something original and it's an opinion. And it comes very naturally to people who work in media and journalism, but it has huge benefits for people who work in any industry. There's an element of risk in having an opinion and there's an element of risk in being out there first. So I think those, they're the characteristics of it. It's new, it's an opinion, and it takes us forward in some way, often in a small way. It's interesting, this idea of, of it being an opinion. And one thing that I've always found interesting is, and I, I'm seeing this shifting, I think, those senior, very visible public figures big executives in the business world, standing for something, having those opinions. Sometimes they're controversial, but things that they fundamentally believe in and they stand by. Someone like Elon Musk, when you do that, it makes you a divisive. I feel like it's where we need to go. Like People need to stand for things and, and kind of publicly own that. How do you see it? Well, a very great example of that at the moment in Australia is the debate over the voice and a lot of corporate Australia taking a stance to support the voice. Some taking no and some taking a neutral stance and facing a lot of criticism. West Farmers was featured in an ad yesterday in the Financial Review which portrayed them appallingly because they'd taken a stance supporting the voice. So opinion and thought leadership comes with risk and the stronger and more controversial I suppose that is, the more risk that takes. I think there's benefits in it too, and that risk is often worth taking, but it's certainly something that needs to be considered before going out. And I hope corporate Australia doesn't feel that it's been burnt by this because I think the leadership role of business is really important. You know, it is a risk, but it can be one that's worth taking. Is there an example that comes to mind of of someone who's done that well or a business that's done that well? Well, I think it might be controversial, but I think Qantas has taken some big leads around elements like diversity, obviously reflecting the nature of the CEO. Obviously, Qantas has faced other problems recently <laughs> and uh, they're, they're, they're building a reputation back and they faced a lot of criticism for it. Is there a thought leader out there that you follow and, and why? Look, I follow lots of 
thought leaders. Now, some of them I'll agree with and, and some of them I won't. Um, I follow a number of thought leaders within my particular industry. Suella Pradonovich, who writes a lot about legal business, for example, is someone who um, I follow quite closely. Okay. So do you see yourself as a thought leader? In some aspects, yes, I think so. Um, I do try and express opinions. Um, I hope that I can adjust those opinions when evidence is to the contrary. And that is the nature of thought leadership is if you're going to be out ahead of people, sometimes you can be wrong. So yes, within my field and my expertise, I have strong opinions. And I also think that thought leadership is the natural place of journalists. And so much of my early career was as a journalist and writing columns and facing that daily grind of mm. the deadline. And your first job always stays with you. And so that is part of me. Is there an example that springs to mind when you were out in front, you were that thought leader and, and you were wrong? I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is really going back now, Joe. I'm, I'm showing my age. I was writing about digital media. My round was media and marketing. I had a weekly column in The Australian and I was writing about how if you wanted to see where the internet was going in five years' time, the Wild West was around the porn industry and around adult stuff. So I talked a little bit about that and said, you know, this is, this is crazy because there's no rules associated with this where there is in other areas. I had a table that accompanied it, which was the kind of adult sites, the top adult sites in those days, because those days it was really very, very tame by comparison today. And there was a site, which is actually a dating site called and they actually, you know, as I think about this, I can't tell the story. <laughs> I can't tell it. It ended up in court for a while. Oh, I tell you. We'll cut it out. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you, but you need to edit it out. Okay? Yeah. It was in the process of being bought out. They were included in this table where I wrote this column talking about, and it was a business column. It wasn't salacious at all. I was writing about some of the things that they were doing in terms of targeting people, for example, using pop-ups and things, which were quite new at that time. Mm. took enormous offence at being included in this table because they were an adult, but you had to be over 18 to sign on yeah. this dating site. Anyway, they galvanised their 120,000 members, I think it was at that time, to email me personally and to email Lachlan Murdoch and the editor of The Australian. <laughs> it was one of the original flames. And I came into work that day and I just had, there was no, I couldn't get my email because it was just streams and streams of really harsh hate mail. And um, I loved it. I wrote about that as well. And then we had a lawyer at The Australian at the time whose name was Twitch because he was always stressed. And he rang me up and he just started going, what the fuck were you thinking writing about that? And why you, did you write about it again? And um, anyway, it was, it was all fine. It ended up being a few legal letters exchanged and it was nothing. But I think that was a case where I was just, I halted the column. I think it was really interesting. And definitely a case where I was ahead of the curve, though, <laughs> a bit too far. I guess for you at the paper at the time, I mean, is that, are you someone now as a crisis manager? Like, are you a subscriber of the belief that there's no such thing as bad, bad publicity? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, there is such thing as bad publicity. <laughs> and you have to balance it carefully. I do believe in transparency, but I believe in what I advise my clients to be strategically transparent. Um, all publicity yeah. is not good publicity. Okay.
Hey, it's me again. If you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're enjoying the chat. Don't forget to give the Thought Follower a rating and share it with your friends. Otherwise, reach out to me on LinkedIn with any guest suggestions or feedback on the show. I'd love to hear from you. Let's get back to the episode. So is there anything about your kind of personal makeup that helps you excel in this area of crisis management that makes you a good crisis manager? I think I'm somewhat obsessed with stories. To me, it doesn't matter if the story is, you know, war and peace or a little story around how um, a law firm is better than another law firm. They all carry this element of conflict and tension, which is a very important aspect of what I put to play in how I advise people around issues in crisis management. I think all issues managers have that. We all have an ability to talk a lot. I think that's quite important. Um, I really like people. I'm interested in people. And I think that comes down to it as well. I don't think there are many introverts in, in our game. I'm kind of picturing a scenario, and this might be way off the mark, but I'm picturing a crowded boardroom, something's gone wrong, and all the big wigs are there, and the crisis manager's been called to kind of run the show and give advice. Is that how it is? <laughs> Sometimes. It's always different. But what is really interesting mm. is the way you imagine if it's a big crisis that there's panic through the boardroom is often not the way it mm. happens. Often things get played down a lot more than they should be. By the time someone like me is in the room, there's a recognition that we've got a problem. But even then, there can be this desire to, well, can we keep it quiet somehow? How can we stop this from coming public? Whereas I think that's the point where you've really got to get out in front and start setting the agenda as much as you can, because it's somewhat out of your control if it's a really, depending on, you know, the nature of what it is, it, it can be out of your control, but yeah. you, you do have elements you can influence. And if you're not doing that, you're taking a big risk. Does it ever wear you down just constantly in that space, that elevated sense of tension? And <clears throat> it's very stressful. One thing I can bring is an element of calm to those where, where there is panic. Just let's just think about things in first principles. It's important not to get too excited. Um, I find people are often drawn to issues in crisis because it seems like an exciting, dramatic place to be. In fact, the best way you can work as an advisor is to bring that down. So part of my career as well was working in politics, advising New South Wales Treasurer and also Planning Minister. And that's an environment which is almost constant crisis and issues and never stops. Mm. And you get very used to managing it and you realise that the mm. best thing you can do for your minister who's going to have to front difficult questions is present them with calm, calm them, have them confidently mm. go into an interview knowing that they have the right answers and a strategy to get through it. What do you do personally to unplug yourself from that? You know, if you're putting this calm exterior on all the time, is there stuff that you need to do for yourself away from work to stay balanced? Oh, I do a lot of things. <laughs> I have a lot of different interests. I'm an obsessive runner, so I do a lot of athletics. I do a couple of marathons a year, so running and exercise is very important to me. I keep bees, so I have a beehive up the back, which I can just sit there and watch them for hours. I can get very nerdy about bees if you like me doing that. The best way to handle stress in any circumstance is not to have your life so dedicated to a single area that that area falling down is going to be a disaster for you. So I can work with a client and things go wrong, but I can go out for a run when I get back. I can 
hang out with my family. Uh, my kids are a little bit older now, so they're not around, but um, all of those things. I think it's it's a matter of having a portfolio of passions. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I love that idea. That's that's brilliant. So one thing I noticed, um, you've been lecturing at university for, I think, over 15 years. What have you seen, if anything, changing? We were talking kind of earlier about how what the general public's kind of state is and, and how they respond is your success measure. How have you seen society shift through that lens of, of you know, those, those graduates coming through into, into the world of work? Yeah. Oh, look, I love teaching. It's a privilege to, to be able to do that with a different generation. Often we don't appreciate that there are generations we, don't just, we just don't touch personally. We're usually very connected to our children. We're very connected to our parents. We're very connected to the generation around us, but we forget there's whole decades there that we barely touch. And teaching allows me to have that. Now, have they changed? Oh, my goodness. Every generation is a bit different. And over such a long period of teaching, mm. I think each generation gets a bit better. It's fabulous. Better in, in, in what sense? Like, give me an example. So the Generation Z, I suppose, is whom I'm teaching at the moment, but I've also taught millennials. And they often face criticism for being so woke. And yes, that's true. There's definitely an element to that. But they're also seeing their careers, seeing their lives, seeing everything mm. through a different lens to that my generation did. We saw a ladder to a career that we were trying to go through. We saw making money as really important. Whereas yeah. I think this generation is seeing involvement with community, diversity, identity, and being involved in a lot of different things mm. apart about money. I love that. And I love working with um, with young people. It keeps me up with the latest thinking around communications because that changes all the time. Mm. And by being involved in an academic institution, you see the kind of papers coming through and, and how things are changing in that regard. And sometimes what is reported in an academic paper actually comes to play five years later you do see it come to play. That's really interesting. The generational piece and Generation Z and, and millennials versus boomers, um, my, my parents' generation, who you touched on that idea of the corporate ladder and, and the financial aspect to that and, and building that financial security for yourself. And what I see now, that generation, they, and particularly look at in the context of Australia and Sydney, you know, property prices and what that means for the generations underneath that layer of boomers have done that. They've got the property, which now is a gold mine. But they all, you know, for me now with young kids, what all of them, two or one, tell me is they wish they had more time with their family and kids on the way up, you know, as they were growing up. And yes, they've they've done the right thing from a financial standpoint and climbed the ladder. But all of them would give some of that back for more presence during their kids' lives. And I think it's interesting seeing that filter through now, you know, to me as, as a dad of a three-year-old and a one-year-old and then to the, the generations below as well, it's partly out of necessity. We playing the kind of property game in Australia is, is almost impossible. You look at alternative means and, and, and think, well, what is really most important to me? And, it, and it's my family and it's these kids that, that are growing up so fast. Um, is that something you've seen? Huge change in society around that and, and a huge positive change, I think. I mean, when my daughter was born, you know, she's now 22, I was working at The Australian and I rang up News Corp and asked about paternity leave. And it was the HR person had never heard of the concept. It was like, you mean annual leave? 
Oh, you've got, you've got five <laughs> days. You know, uh, there was there was no concept like that. And in a very short period, really, we've changed so dramatically and so positively. And I think that is something that's been driven by younger generations that are seeing world differently and very positively. So I think that's a great change. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's exciting for the future. You know, think things are going to have to shift and kind of who knows where they'll lead. Andrew, thank you for a really interesting chat. Learned a lot about crises, some interesting stories from your time as a journalist. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us. It's been my pleasure anytime. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to support me or the show, best way is to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And please get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Love to hear from you with any guest recommendations or feedback on the show. See you on the next one.